0: Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. Okay, I want to explain in advance. This one is going to be a little long, but believe me, you're going to be glad you spent the time. And you know, you might even find yourself listening to this particular episode a couple of times. There's so much good stuff coming. Terry Lloyd has started more than a dozen companies in Japan, and he's hired hundreds of people over the past 30 years. Now, Terry and I have known each other for a long time. In fact, when I was first starting out in Japan, I did some programming for one of his companies back in the 90s. I wrote for one of his magazines in the early 2000s. And, you know, I'm not sure what took me so long to invite him to sit down and talk. But I'm glad I finally did. Of course, we talk about Japan travel, Terry's latest startup. But our conversation also turns into a brutally practical guide for any foreigner who wants to run a business in Japan. I'll warn you in advance... Our conversation lacks most of the startup hype and pep-talking most founders exude, but you're about to hear some fantastic real-world advice about how foreigners can hire, manage, and occasionally even fire Japanese staff. Japanese labor law is, well, different than it is in the U.S. or Europe, And more than a few foreigners have made simple mistakes in this area that ended up killing their companies. Terry has some great advice both on how to attract and to keep Japanese talent, and a few real-world examples of how you can protect yourself when things go horribly, horribly wrong. But you know, Terry tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So I'm sitting here with Terry Lloyd, the founder and CEO of Japan Travel and Link Media and BIOS and quite a few other companies. So thanks for sitting down with me. It's my pleasure. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm amazed how long it's taken us to, to get around to doing this interview because we've known each other for a couple of decades now.
1: Yeah, that's right. Absolutely.
0: And I, I, I want to talk about Japan Travel But there's a lot I want to dig into about the ecosystem itself and how it's changed and some real practical advice for foreigners doing business here.
1: Sure.
0: So, um, well, let's talk about Japan travel. Um, Can you explain how it works? I think it's a really interesting model.
1: Mm. Well, um, I started off as a portal. Um, I've been interested in media for a long time, as you know. Uh, And so I wanted to create a community-driven media um, brand, basically. The uh, impetus for making Japan travel, of course, was the uh, Tohoku disaster. And uh, so I wasn't really, you know, thinking too hard about turning it into a business per se. I thought it would be kind of like a good way to contribute to help rebuild Japan as you recall, back in 2011, there weren't too many people looking at traveling to Japan.
0: Oh, I see. So, I mean, but you always envisioned that as a inbound travel portal, right? No, actually, originally, I created
1: a piece of software which we call ACQ2, uh, which is a community management uh, platform. And uh, I uh, went out and tried to get funding for it, and It was obvious that nobody really understood what I was trying to do. I don't know that I understood. Uh, So I I realized I would have to make something that was more solid that people could identify with. And actually, originally, I started off with a dog site, and then um, that was called doglovers.jp. And then, at roughly the same time, of course, the earthquake happened. Mm. I had a very powerful dream, actually, and it woke me up. I started writing down furiously what I remembered. And uh, I decided that I would um, do something to contribute to um, help uh, Japan. Um, I've always been a firm believer that uh, money follows quality. So, you know, if we did a good job, maybe we could turn it into a business. Of course, that's always in the back of my mind.
0: What exactly is the platform? How does it work?
1: Yes, okay, so um, originally, as I say, we started off trying to build a portal I'd always been in the publishing business where we were very concerned about quality, but at the same time we have all these constraints. and one of the constraints are is um, you know having to hire people uh, to create the content and so on. Um, and so I decided that I would try to do something more on a community basis, but build in this whole you know quality control method. Um, the earthquake uh, turned out to be uh, kind of like a blessing and a curse. Um, it was a curse because of course there are no advertisers but it was a blessing because there were a lot of other people like me who felt like they wanted to do something to help Japan so uh, the first stage I just rang around and and emailed uh, friends my network uh, basically of foreigners living in Japan Uh, I must have contacted about 500 people I had a great response and so on the basis of that um, we started building this community Uh, we ran it on the platform And today, that community is about 30,000 people, so it's quite large.
0: And and the platform itself allows for crowdsourced content generation with some editorial control and some editorial direction as well, right?
1: Yeah, I I took two patents out, actually, which I uh, have successfully received just recently. Um, One was an insight into human behavior. So when you have people who are contributing to a crowd in the cloud, which is hard for... It's Japanese hard to get that in Japanese.
0: Japanese yeah. Yes.
1: <laughs> um, that basically, uh, if you ask them what kind of job they want to do right at the start, and they nominate the role you know, out of a pull-down, um, generally they'll stick to that. So I have people who um, first sign up as um, people who create the original content, of course. Uh, they're kind of like travel journalists. And then we have people above that who are editors and people who are fact-checkers, and people who are translators, and so on. So each layer, those people kind of stick to their role. Okay. So you get this kind of like uh, 360 coverage uh, for each article. You don't get just one person's Mm -hmm. view. You get like at least two or three other people on top of them. And by the time you come out of that process, that article is actually transformed. So, so
0: what's the motivation for people to participate? I mean, for writers, and I think both you and I can attest to this, writers are willing to write for free to get their ideas out there and to be heard. Right. But editors and fact checkers, much less so. So what brings yeah. them onto a platform?
1: Um, well, uh, first of all, we have this points and rewards system, which is kind of like, um, you know, imagine Facebook rewarded everyone for all the work they do to make it worth all those billions. Um, That's the first thing. And then secondly, uh, as people uh, become skilled and their reputation goes up, we ask them commercial work. So we have lots of commercial work coming in, regional governments, large corporations, advertising companies, travel agencies, and so on. And so we basically ask those people to do that work.
0: Okay. And and the... the first application you used this for was, uh, you mentioned a dog site? Yeah,
1: that's right, for people who were
0: dog lovers, basically. So what happened with that?
1: Well, I, I had two sites running in t- 2013, and uh, Abe got voted into power, and then suddenly you know, uh, opened up all the visas, the floodgates for tourism, and the tourist site just took off. The dog site was also doing well, in fact we were number four uh, in the country when we decided to close it down. Um, I just couldn't afford to run two things at the same time, so I decided to focus on the travel side of things. But um, I still have uh, the dog lovers domain and at some point I may
0: actually uh, re-Zoom. Bring that back to life? Well, the travel industry is an interesting one, particularly with startups in general. Yeah. So it's a huge growth industry, one of the few growth industries in Japan. Yes. Right. But there seems to be relatively little venture investment in travel. Why, why is that? Yeah, so I,
1: I have, uh, of course, first-hand experience of this. Um, so uh, <clears throat> for the first two or three years, this, uh, it was just a project. We called it Japantourist.jp. And then in 2013, it was obvious that things were going to change. Uh, thanks to the government and so on, even though I don't personally like the current government. But anyway, so um, basically uh, I got very lucky. I managed to secure the japantravel.com domain name uh, from a lady in the States that was just happenstance. And um, on the basis of that, um, I decided to go out and see a bunch of VCs. I saw 25 VCs, and 20 of them told me that the sector was too small. Travel. This
0: was what year? Uh,
1: This was uh, basically the end of 2014 going into 2015.
0: Okay, so the travel boom was really, it was already taking off at that point. It was
1: underway. We were experiencing 100% growth rates uh, for the previous two years. So that really kind of made me realize that, um, A, there is very little sectoral expertise here. Uh, and then secondly uh, those companies that were interested um, they had all kinds of other concerns you know being a foreigner uh, whether or not uh, the Olympics would be the end of the inbound travel boom Uh, you know everyone had a reason to say no I did actually have one uh, VC who did offer money uh, but the valuation was low enough that I decided to uh, forego that
0: keep running it yourself
1: Well, actually, what I did is I I went and approached friends and family. Mm. And so now I have uh, 25 uh, independent investors, uh, much better valuation. And um, they're all friendly investors, you know, so I don't have to deal with VC issues yet. Now, you know, at some point, we will still do a Series A. Uh, At that point, we will have a, a VC in there. But it's given me a couple of extra years to layer in corporate governance uh, controls, you know, systems, that kind of thing.
0: This is one of the issues that I get asked about the most. Um, in terms of should I should I bootstrap, should I rely on friends and family and savings, or should I go out to a to a VC? So, in this case, do you think they just didn't understand the idea? They didn't believe that inbound travel was going to be a thing in Japan, or? Was it just like a herd mentality? No one else was investing in this sector, so they didn't want to either? What was the hang-up? I believe that's part of it. Um, I
1: I certainly don't fit the uh, mold of what Japanese VCs are looking for. Um, I'm foreign. I'm older. uh, I'm experienced. I I won't roll over at the sniff of money. You know, that kind of thing. And they don't like that, right? They, They basically... I mean, it's human nature. But um, Japanese VCs, generally speaking, uh, when they anoint somebody, uh, then basically uh, they expect that person to roll over and do what they say.
0: Th- this is something I've, I've seen, and I, I agree with you, that Japan is such a hierarchical society. Yes. And VCs, by the nature of the fact that they have the money, seem to want to occupy like that higher position in the yes, hierarchy. Yes, they do. So you feel like your your experience and knowledge was actually working against you? Um,
1: I I think that it's threatening uh, for a VC when they're sitting opposite somebody who probably knows a lot more about doing business than they do. I do think that. Um, And then secondly, uh, VCs, you know, it's again human nature. They want to make a killing. And um, one of the, you asked before, you know, kind of like what's changed in the VC sector The really noticeable thing that's changed is that, well, first of all, okay, what hasn't changed? Japan has always followed the US, you know, and and so basically in the US, everyone's going on about um, billion-dollar companies, unicorns. So I noticed towards the uh, middle of 2015 that people started talking about unicorns all the time. And of course, Japantravel.com is not a unicorn, right? It's a vertical play, not a horizontal play. So, it's all about Japan. Would we ever be worth a billion dollars? Well, maybe in 20, 30 years, but that's certainly not my intent, you know. I want to do an IPO, I want to look like a normal, you know, public company. And so uh, that's not enough anymore. So, I do find that these guys are basically hyping themselves up. Uh, there are, of course, bottom feeders who are the exact opposite, right? And then they yeah. want to get in cheap. I mean,
0: the, the vast majority so. of companies being funded in Japan, and I'm not going to... We don't have to mention any names, but I mean, the vast majority have no hope of ever being a billion-dollar company. Yeah, they don't. And right, but they, were, you, were you, you getting the same reaction from, like, foreign VCs as you were from Japanese? Or were you primarily approaching Japanese VCs? I, I
1: just went after Japanese VCs, and that was the reason, because it's called Japantravel.com. Right. So, you know, I couldn't imagine that there would be many foreign VCs interested in the Japanese inbound travel market.
0: But it seems with the relative success of Airbnb and the changes to the Minpaku laws, and there's more and more travel-related startups that have popped up in the last two or three years. Yeah. It would seem that the environment, well, has the environment changed? Is there more of an investing appetite for travel-related businesses now than there were than there was the last time you went out i think um within the travel
1: space the real action to be had from a vc point of view and if you're tailoring your company to fit a vc's perspective you would have a platform which can go global you wouldn't have a vertical play so you certainly wouldn't call it japantravel.com
0: well but your your core value is this platform you have it's not the 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 travel site, the travel platform was one application of it. Yes. So were you trying to raise money for that that platform? Yes, for the
1: travel platform itself. Yeah, not for the software. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so the travel platform, what I've done is that I've built it into a vertical play. And so we have the portal, we have a travel agency, and now we have a um, a basically Japan travel data integration team. So we're integrating all this data in the back end. Um, it won't be a billion-dollar company. I'm not planning to make it a billion-dollar company. Um, If we do a $100 million in 10 years' time in sales and revenue, um, that will be on track. And that's something that I'd be quite comfortable with. And, you know, it used to be that VCs were actually pretty happy with that kind of projection.
0: I, I think that's, you know, those kind of revenues are much higher than most companies that IPO in Japan. It puts put you in the the very top bracket of that.
1: Yes. Well, uh, you know, I mean, if we're going to IPO, we'll do what everybody else is doing and IPO at uh, 15 or 20 million dollars of revenue uh, with about three to four million of profit.
0: Have you thought about throwing out the point system and making it revolve around a cryptocurrency or a, a token based system? Yes, I have, actually. Um, The thing about uh, tokens
1: and uh, cryptocurrencies is that you need to make it uh, liquid. If it's not liquid, then people won't buy it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Well, they may buy it. They may buy it if I did an ICO in the next six weeks. But anyway, I'm not going that direction. (laughs) The iron iron is hot right now. Yes, that's right. But uh, frankly speaking, uh, it, it needs to be a fairly broad and liquid market before people can really justify jumping in. And, uh, you know, I don't see 30,000 people being
0: liquid enough. Mm. Um, but isn't, we isn't the that. same thing true of, like, uh, point systems in general, though? There's, I, don't, I don't see a huge fundamental difference between exchanging points and exchanging tokens in terms of, like, liquidity within the, the platform itself. Actually, it's
1: extremely similar. It is extremely similar. The difference is the point system is very easy to manage, uh, and not complicated uh, technically at all, uh, whereas um, tokens and so on uh, are.
0: Yeah, it, it requires. It's not that complex from the the provider side, but you ask you have to ask a lot of the people who participate in your marketplace to sign up and get wallets and and jump through a lot of hurdles. Right. I
1: mean, you're talking an extra 30 to 50 million yen of software development uh, to be able to implement that kind of subsystem. For us, it's only one of uh, probably half a dozen systems that we run in the company. For now, I've decided to ignore it. It is interesting, but it's hard to understand how you could apply an ICO to a real-world business versus one which is kind of more platformish and and more revolving around coins themselves.
0: Well, I, I think it's interesting to note that the vast majority of ICOs are by companies that aren't going to be launching a product for more than a year. I think, I think a lot of these companies or perhaps a lot of their investors are going to discover the same thing about a year or now when they have to go into operations with these systems. Right, and then
1: so that means the company will implode. And, you know, I mean, I didn't build the company to just gamble it away on one, you know, fad. Um, basically, I want to be successful and, and be self-sustaining.
0: Back to the idea we were throwing around before about Japanese investors perhaps being unwilling to invest in entrepreneurs with age and experience so you've been creating companies here for 25 years plus yeah 30 30, 30 years 30 years yeah I guess that's right this is this is sort of our third Japanese economic bubble it is <laughs> indeed. And I, this is company number 17 for me. Oh, my gosh. Aaron's Pen. Some things must have gotten easier. So even though you decided to go with your more tra- the more traditional kind of friends and family route, some things must have gotten better in terms of investment mm-hmm. and starting companies.
1: Um, yeah, certainly there is one really notable thing that has improved, and that's the ability to be able to decentralize. So it used to be when we set up a company, we would have to have all the resources on-premise. And that's no longer the case, right? So we can do our hosting somewhere. We can do our technical development somewhere else. uh, We can have our salespeople somewhere else again. Uh, That's really a huge difference between now and even five years ago.
0: Is that just in terms of being able to control costs, or to find the right people, or to scale up and down as needed. Yeah. All of, all all of the above? All of the above. <laughs> I'll give you an
1: example. The third leg to our platform in Japan Travel is this uh, IT business, basically, um, where we take data which is being held by big Japanese companies who don't know how to target foreign travelers. And so they need somebody like us who actually has a portal and also is licensed so, as we go around and talking to these uh, various Japanese companies, we mentioned this magic word, API, right, well, the contraction, right, abbreviation. And then basically they don't know what it is. And then uh, as I started asking around, I realized that the sharing economy has completely missed Japan in certain sectors, uh, particularly the B2B sector.
0: Yeah, it is. There is not a culture of open data and open access to information here. There isn't, because if you opened a kimono, you got attacked,
1: right? Mm -hmm. So basically, it is a built-in cultural thing not to share. I mean, if you want to do a deal with uh, uh, Toyota, for example, you know, Toyota will invest in you and then, over a couple of generations, ingest you into their uh, conglomerate. Yeah. Right? You might still have the family name, you may still have family shares, but your system is going to be Toyota's system. And they'll, they'll fit you into that hierarchy somehow. And, and that permeates right through uh, society. And so, of course, there are some, uh, uh, you know, sharing economy uh, things going on. But, you know, if you look, even those companies want to keep it to themselves, and Ruck Ten is a great example. A Ruck Ten is a sharing economy type company, but if you try to do a deal with ruck10 you 'll quickly find it's a big black hole and basically they want to control it and you're just a you know kind of like a
0: uh, subcontractor well th- this is something that at least i've seen, but I really want to hear your perspective on it so comparing doing business as a startup or a foreign startup in like the, the dot-com era and doing it now. So certainly there are some, some big clients who operate that way. They want to control everything and you get pushed down through three levels of subcontractor who will try to extract as much information from you as possible and give up as little as possible. Right. But in like 1999, it seemed to me that all the companies were that way. And it seems that now there's a lot more companies who are willing to engage directly with startups and willing to engage directly with new companies. Have, have you found that as well? Or am I just seeing a very tiny sliver of, of the Japan economy here? I think
1: um, there's a one litmus test. Do they have an API? If they don't have an API, they're not a sharing economy company.
0: Well, okay, that's true. There's a lot of, but there's a lot of like technical legacy that these companies are bringing with them. So, for example, um, the Financial Services Agency is putting a huge amount of pressure on Japanese banks to build APIs and to, to share data with startups. Yeah, like MoneyTree, for example. Yeah, like MoneyTree is, is one of the companies taking advantage of that.
1: You know, MoneyTree, I think, um, right place, right time, great connections, great execution, great company. Right, they're not normal, and uh, I'm sure if you talk to the MoneyTree guys, you'll find that those banks are still kicking and screaming about you know what data they're going to actually open up. I mean, MoneyTree, as I understand it, is mostly about personal finance, so it's the customer asking the bank for their information.
0: Well, they actually MoneyTree was a bit ahead of the game, so they they've been on the show. They were explaining that they launched their service before the existence of these APIs. And the APIs right now are still minimal. So they had to work around it. Okay. Do you see any movement? So in the case of the banks, the government's forcing them to open up. In the case of like the energy sector, the government's forcing them to open them up. And these are highly regulated industries that the government can force them to do that. Yeah. Do you see this happening
1: anywhere else? Even in the ones that are being forced open, there are no APIs, right, to speak of. Do I see it anywhere else? You know, look, there's this awareness of what's going on abroad. And um, the opportunity for those of us who are not Japanese or who are Japanese but can access foreign technology and know-how is to uh, find the beachheads. Now, the best beachheads in Japan are always the ones where foreigners have a dominant hand ie the customers are foreign the money comes from abroad the the things that have to be delivered involve some foreign aspect Right, right so as soon as you have that kind of like outside the castle type activity that's an opportunity and so travel is very much in that space and that's actually one reason why I doubled down on travel and gave up on
0: the dogs even within travel it seems that a lot of the Japanese travel agencies aren't particularly anxious to engage with with foreign companies. Um, a lot of the travel, the local travel boards, the local travel bureaus, or even the national travel bureaus don't really seem to have a lot of foreign input into their decisions. Yeah, um, yeah, that, so
1: that's like three questions in one. Okay, yeah, I kind of yeah. got
0: ahead,
1: yeah. <laughs> okay, So, um, so first of all, the way the market operates. The so, uh, Japanese government said last year there are roughly about 30 billion US dollars of tourist spend in Japan. But actually, the amount of uh, spending in Japan by tourists is only about, roughly my guess, about half of the actual spent. Why? Because a lot of people were spending money before they come to Japan. So they're booking through booking.com and, and various other... Um, uh, agencies right uh so that money doesn't come to japan directly it, it goes indirectly okay. and and in fact if you think about it that that uh those commissions which are going to booking.com and expedia and the others um they're kind of like a tax in a way a foreign company tax anyway it's huge it's a huge sure.
0: business well it's money that doesn't get into the japanese economy in any way. Uh, well, it does
1: eventually because expedia has to pay the hotels but the point is they control everything and they take their 20%, right? Or 25%. It's really a massive amount of money. So um, when you have a, a, an economy um, in a sector which is uh, worth maybe 50, 60 billion US dollars, well, basically, that, that is a pretty interesting business. So um, the uh, Japanese travel agencies, uh, the JTBs, the k the Club Tourisms, those sort of companies, you're right that they are not On the surface, uh, they they, they don't seem to be capable uh, with foreign tourists. They don't seem to be out there doing the same sort of high-grade job uh, that Expedia and uh, and Booking.com are doing. But in fact, behind the scenes, they have a great wholesale business because what they do have is, of course, relationships with all these hotels. Now, Booking.com is a bit different. Booking.com goes in and gets its own hotels. And in fact, they've spent millions, must be tens of millions of dollars over the last five or ten years uh, acquiring those hotels. They're by far the biggest, uh, they have by far the biggest inventory of hotels in Japan to offer to foreigners. In fact, about double what the Japanese majors offer, which is amazing, actually. Uh, So um, these uh, large companies, um, they do have business,
0: but it's all subterranean. You can't see it. Well, why haven't we seen the, the kind of disruption in the Japan travel industry that we've seen in Europe or the United States? For example, I mean, Expedia is here. Booking.com is here. But are they primarily focused on foreign tourists coming into Japan? Or do they have a significant amount of activity in the domestic travel? Okay,
1: far? well, that's a, that's a good question. So um, basically, the Japanese tourism economy is divided into three. Uh, There's the inbound, uh, which, of course, we are related to. There's the outbound, which is Japanese going abroad, and there's domestic. By far the biggest uh, tourism sector is domestic. Um, I I forget exactly the number, but it's something like 300 million trips are taken a year in Japan domestically versus about 17 million trips taken abroad each year as outbound. And, of course, this year it will be about 27 million inbound so the domestic uh, space is 10 times larger of course the spend is smaller but nonetheless a 10 times larger market so um, the likes of uh, you know KNT and JTB and so on they're they're pretty um, satisfied with what they're doing uh, just with the domestic economy uh, is booking.com making much progress into that space the answer is probably not much a little uh-huh. bit but but not that much there are plenty of other companies out there Trip and uh, EQ and uh, 10 Travel and so on, who have much closer integration, tighter integration with the hotels. Um, they may own the system the hotel uses to do their bookings, uh, or they may own the aggregator just above it, or they may own some kind of channel marketing company. So anyway, they, that's a pretty well-developed infrastructure, and those companies are, have enough you know, revenue coming out of there that they can stay where they are, but they're not growing.
0: So So those those companies meaning the the JTBs or the the challengers, the Rakuten's?
1: Well, um, both. So consumers, generally speaking, of course, these days are shopping online. JTB has Japanican, for example, but Japanican has a big problem in that they have to get their inventory out of JTB, which means their prices are quite high. And so Rakuten Travel and EQ and the others, they actually do a much better job of price control. So, you know, where are the consumers going to go? Well, they're going to go with those online companies. But for the JTBs uh, of the world, of course, they have these huge government projects, sports events at a prefectural level, you know, marathons and whatever. Right.
0: They make tons and tons of money out of that kind of thing. Still, though, it seems surprising. Well, in terms of why there there hasn't been the disruption, does it get back to not necessarily the lack of APIs, but the lack of digital data? Is JTB is is this inventory all being managed on paper? I, I can't understand. I can't, I why can't
1: really say what I know about JTB, but I can tell you it's one of the world's most inefficient companies. Well, this does, does not surprise me. It's
0: just because, I mean, for example, real estate in Japan. Yes, it's it's ripe for disruption, but. So much of the inventory management is done with paper and fax, yes. so there's no central database, let alone APIs. Is travel and hotel booking, is it, is it similar? It
1: is in a way because they're both licensed activities. And so whenever you get a licensed uh, subset of the economy, uh, you have, of course, everything is led by regulation. And if the regulations require you to um, have paper, then you've got to have paper. So like a classic example is, why do Japanese hotels still require guests to fill out a little paper slip? Right. It's crazy, right? I mean, uh, there has been talk uh, recently of the Japanese government um, issuing cards, like an ID card uh, for tourists, and then they'll make it palatable
0: by offering discounts uh, when you buy stuff and that sort of thing as well. Huh. Yeah, so some industries obviously move faster than others, but... As someone who's been doing business here as a startup founder for 30 years, do you think that either Japanese consumers or Japanese businesses are more likely, more willing to take risks on new companies and new brands? Or is that something you don't think has changed much?
1: I don't think it's really changed. You know, of course, a tool is a tool. And so if you have something that somebody sees as a tool... As long as there's not uh, too much risk involved, uh, you know, they will move quickly and uh, they will um, use that tool. But the fact is that, uh, you know, look, I've been around the track, uh, well, 17 times, seven earnouts outs of my own, one where I um, did it for somebody else. I have found that you basically have to own your own ecosystem. You have to own your own clients. You have to own your own method of delivery. You have to certainly own your own technology. So there is kind of like a minimum investment that has to be made in order to be able to develop an opportunity. And uh, as a foreigner in particular, you know, you don't have the networks, you don't have the relationships, and you just don't fit. So that's okay. There's still plenty of opportunities for foreigners to make business here, but almost all of the foreigners I know invented something. They, They found a niche and they made something completely new They didn't go in and disrupt some existing sector.
0: So when you're saying inventing something, do you mean a a particular patentable product or a business model? They may have set
1: a trend. Um, Take James Gow, for example, who did FX online and had a fantastic $200 million buyout. Uh, He did that in, what, 10 years, 10, 10, 12 years. Um, He was on the leading edge of something, right? Now, as I understand it, his trades were all executed by a firm back in the UK. So he didn't necessarily invent that, but he certainly spent lots of time and energy on the front end and making that user friendly. And until then, nobody had thought that users needed to trade FX, let alone do it in a way that was, you know, kind of like stock trading companies
0: that were in the States 10 years earlier. That's an interesting example, but it seems a kind of go against what you were saying before about uh, foreigners have an advantage when they're focusing on their foreignness, either like bringing in new technology or, or doing something that the Japanese can't do. Right. And he seems like a good example of someone who focused on the Japanese market because most of his customers were Japanese. And, and said, Yeah, but the tech came from the UK and the trades came from the UK, so he
1: was able to do something that other people weren't able to do at that time.
0: Okay, so there, it just it wasn't technically possible or at least technically feasible to do that exactly. within Japan. Yes, that's
1: correct. Okay. Yes. And so in the UK, they were much more advanced and so he was able to sort of take that technology and replicate it and serve it up in Japanese format uh, here in Japan. And in fact, there are loads and loads of entrepreneurs who have used very similar techniques. Um, and so when I say invent something, it may not be invent out of thin air, right? It might be that they've invented a new trend or a new interface or something yeah. like that. I mean, Masayoshi Song, you know, uh, the way that he got Yahoo BB up and running, if you remember those parasol uh, stations he used to, ha- the, the parasol retailing uh, marketing he used to do in front of train stations? Yeah, the kiosks. That? The kiosks, right? Which were probably really illegal at the time, <laughs> but anyway, he did it. He was able to do that because he found this router, uh, which was highly configurable, uh, which was made in the states, and that router actually enabled Yahoo BB's business right at the start, and got the broadband revolution up and running here in Japan. You know, without that, he wouldn't have been able to achieve it. So, you know, I think that uh, Masayoshi Son is a great example of somebody who leverages foreign technology,
0: foreignness, you know, and and the whole intra-border thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that is, that is true. It's You need to play to your strengths, whatever they might be. And as a foreigner in Japan, access to an understanding of foreign markets is certainly one of those strengths.
1: Well, you know, like us, for example. So, OK, I'm an experienced entrepreneur. Um, I know what's needed, but still I rely on something foreign in order to be able to leverage my business. So, for example, about two years ago, I was asked by a software company in the States to do a project for them. And that software company happened to be a company that uh, did APIs. So I learned a lot about APIs. And then I learned about this whole sharing economy and what the the underpinning infrastructure was, which was APIs. And then I realized, wait a minute, there's none of these here in Japan. So that's actually why I decided to set up this data integration team inside Japan Travel, because it perfectly fits the vertical and it's a huge gap uh, and a
0: huge opportunity. Playing to the strengths as a foreigner makes a lot of sense in terms of technology and business opportunity. Mm. What's been your approach over the years to recruiting staff? Because that's one of the most difficult challenges faced by, by foreign entrepreneurs here.
1: Yeah, I've written some Terry's takes. Quite a few this. of them, yeah. yeah. That's right. Things haven't really changed in terms of hiring staff. It's still difficult. Uh, I have found that over the last 30 years, young Japanese tend to be more influenced by the quality of leadership of a company these days rather than the brand name. When they come straight out of university, their mother is telling them what to do, right?
0: Yeah, they tell them to go work at Nomura. Yeah, yeah. right,
1: exactly. But, you know, um, there is this statistic, uh, on average, young Japanese under 30 have switched jobs three times, right? So people are in their late uh, 20s and early 30s really are starting to think about their value system, what you know, what's important for them. Now those people who are on a financial fast track, of course, they'll just stay locked into that and, and focus on the money. But because Japanese companies are so parsimonious with paying salaries to young people, there are a lot of young people
0: that money isn't the major motivator anymore. So what what's the ideal age range? Like Late 20s, early 30s? Is that where you target most of your recruitment? I do, yeah.
1: yeah. I, I try to find people who um, have already been able to draw their own conclusions about their lives. And they have some confidence about uh, you know, where they want to go and what they want to do. And then they're, they're not just on the money track. I mean, especially as a startup, we don't have a lot of money to throw around. So people have to have a, you know, a, a different value system. There's a whole you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs at work, right? Right. Uh, For me, uh, running a uh, small startup, things that matter for me are people to produce the content, well that's in the community, people to sell and monetize the content, well that's bilingual Japanese mostly, and then people to build the systems. So to build the systems, as I was mentioning before, the solution these days is to do it abroad. So I do have somebody uh, here at all times, because you have to gap fill. But basically, most of my trusted and and senior people are uh, in the technology space or somewhere else.
0: Were those people that that worked for you here and then have moved? Or are they people that you recruited from abroad to begin with? Um, I
1: may have recruited them from abroad, but I have a a method, Mm -hmm. uh, which is that I bring people in for at least a year to two years. Um, Why? Because I want to know who they are. And I want them to know who we are it really makes a big difference. Uh, The retention factor, the throughput, uh, when they go back home, that kind of thing. Um, If they know who they're working for, they feel some kind of like connection and they want to do a good job
0: and they want to perform. What you said before about uh, being attracted to the quality of leadership makes sense. But taking one step back from that in the process, Mm -hmm. as a startup, nobody knows your brand, nobody knows your name. Uh, Once they get to know you, they can say, okay, I'd like to work for this person or um, I I agree with this person's vision. But what's been your strategy to kind of stand out above the noise of all of the, well, now thousands of startups that are trying to hire and tens of thousands of kind of like mid-sized businesses that are trying to hire that same demographic of people?
1: Yeah. Yeah this goes to leadership right Um, as a leader of a company fundamentally you have to be uh, noticeable you have to be public Um, you have to uh, provide a a very good indication of what your values and value system is Uh, when i uh, create a website i always have a message from the president like you know every japanese company does but i try to make it come from the heart Not some flowery thing that, you know, looks like it might have substance, but you can't actually pin it down. Right. Uh, You know, I'm talking about overcoming hardship and, you know, how to uh, be successful in Japan as a non-Japanese and that kind of thing. And that really strikes a chord, not only with foreigners, but also with Japanese. Um, There are many Japanese bilinguals who have invested uh, years of their lives to acquire language skills. They may have studied abroad. They may have um, just gone to English school here in Japan. And for them, to to make that investment, that's an emotional thing. Mm. And so, you know, they really uh, feel their destiny is somehow related to international, you know, um, companies. And if you can be that international company for them, then you can have a very loyal and and highly productive person. So with with 17
0: companies that founded over the last 30 years or so. Yeah, not all successful. But well, no, it's, they, they never are. <laughs> I had some really flaming heaps as well. <laughs> uh, are you generally hiring someone for a particular role in a particular company, or are you trying to hire people and get them on as like a long-term career path through multiple endeavors?
1: So um, again, a very good question coming from somebody who <laughs> knows that problem. My general attitude is that I hire on personality. It's difficult because, you know, sometimes the cash flow doesn't fit, right? But I really want that person. So um, if I meet somebody who seems to be a good fit, I will try to make space for them. And it's not very often that I can't do that. Um, Having said that, every now and again, you'll run into an emergency, right? You just have to have somebody. Um, It depends what kind of emergency it is. Uh, Generally, I try to keep my emergencies more on the technical side because it is easier to go get uh, technical resources, especially if you go abroad. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I've always got an an ace up
0: my sleeve, if you like, in terms of technical resources. As a foreign startup founder in Japan, hiring Japanese staff, what, what kind of turnover should they expect um, the ideal turnover is none. Right. But can they exp- is
1: that a reasonable expectation? Well, we're four years old and I, I haven't lost anyone I didn't want to lose. So I do fire people occasionally, not very often, but most of my Japanese staff have been with me since uh, they joined, uh, uh, meaning they haven't left. How? Uh, While well, they can see me working hard, that's that's important, you know. No, it is, it is. When uh, Japanese staff can see the founder working as hard as they are, that it makes them feel better. Uh, this may make you laugh, but uh, over the last year, I got very interested in making sourdough bread. I bring bread into the office for my staff. It's a kind of like, you know, I'm almost like feeding them, you know, right. kind of thing. And because it's sourdough, it's got a kind of a technical aspect to it, right? And, and so many of my Japanese staff never ate sourdough before. Yeah, I don't like going drinking. So I don't do that side of things, but I still bond and the way I bond is my own personal style, which right, is great. Right. Well,
0: I I I think that kind of interaction and and building a relationship has to be a a personal style. You can't yes. uh I mean, granted there are consulting firms that tell you how to do that, but I I don't think it will stick if it's someone else's playbook.
1: Oh, there's a lot of people who do it just by drinking, you know, and uh, like to drink with people in order to bond is extremely time consuming. I, I think that um, as a foreigner in Japan, as soon as you show your human side, then Japanese staff, even if they can't really communicate that well with you, basically um, they start seeing you as a, as a friend. And they want to stay and they want to work hard and they want to do the best they can. And uh, you know, there's one golden rule in starting, in starting and running companies. It's not loss of profits that kills a company, it's cash flow. The inability sure. to be able to pay salaries at the end of the month is far worse than if you were just simply losing money on a yearly basis.
0: Well, sure, especially, especially in Japan where you've got corporate clients who want to pay you like net 90.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah.
0: Ridiculous things like that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or worse, right? I've got one
1: client that's going to be paying me a couple hundred thousand dollars net 180.
0: <laughs> okay, that, that's, yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. I think kind of the flip side to that employee loyalty is that in Japan, it can be really difficult to get rid of bad employees who, yes. who don't want to leave. And a lot of foreign founders don't realize this until it's far too late.
1: Yeah.
0: And you've written a lot of really good pieces on this. Yes. And what's your best advice for foreign founders to keep themselves out of trouble in this regard? If you're a startup, you're probably not making
1: money. Mm. And if you're not making money, actually it is legal from an economic standpoint to let somebody go. So you can say the company can't afford it, we might go out of business if we don't let this person go. Of course, you're going to have a fight on your hands if the person decides to go to the Labor Standards Office or elsewhere, but it is a... Uh, It is a reasonable and sustainable argument.
0: And so, actually, I guess we should probably explain for our foreign listeners that Japanese labor law is incredibly um, favorable towards the employee. Yes. uh, There are actually four layers of law. and, And the company has to show... A very narrow range of cause for letting someone go. Like incompetence is not a incompetence legitimate cause. Incompetence is not a
1: legitimate cause. No, uh-huh. the best cause is um, financial hardship. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, that's one way. Another way is that a lot of people don't know that uh, it is legal. Again, under financial hardship, to reduce salaries by ten percent or so. So, if you did this every six months, at some point that person would get the message. I imagine so. Right. So, um, so that's another way when you separate from somebody, you know, it's not really an issue of, uh, whether it's hard to get rid of them. It's an issue of just how much punishment you have to take in order to get rid of them. So if you have somebody who is a problem, you may use some more creative techniques to try to let them go. So one of the things that I use, and it does, it's not very often because I try not to make too many mistakes, but, um, Peer group pressure in Japan is something that most Japanese are not capable of withstanding. If their peer group hates them, then basically they'll leave. They'll leave. And so therefore, I, what I've done several times, not recently, but certainly in the last 10 years, is that I've gone to the peer group and I've said, okay, I can't deal with this person. I really want to fire them, but I'll let you guys keep them if you can fix them. Interesting. And so uh, usually I'll go to a manager who is Japanese or you know somebody who's a strong opinion leader, and then I'll give them some time and I'll let them take the person out uh, of the office and counsel them themselves. And you know what happens? Basically, that peer group gets behind the person and tries to help them. If the person improves, then you fix the problem. Now, they may not be an outstanding player. They may just be somebody who just barely you know, meets the grade, but that's fine as long as they're not negatively impacting the company. Right, right. But if they don't improve, if they have really a systemic problem, you know, some personality disorder or something else, that group will turn against the person and
0: make them leave themselves. Interesting. And from your experience over the last couple of decades, when you, when you have to resort to that tactic. Do you find usually the, the managers and the peer groups are saying, okay, well, let's, let's work on it and see if we can, we can salvage this? Or do they also agree that this person is not working out and, and it'd be best for all concerned if we let him go?
1: I would say that it's a funnel. And so um, at the top of the funnel, the widest point, you have lots of communication going on with your team leaders and they already know what's going on. So actually you wouldn't have to use this tactic because everybody knows and agrees that person needs to leave. But as you narrow down the funnel, you've got these rare cases, you know, people who have one thing that they do really well, but everything else sucks. And so, you know, you really don't want that person around, but that one thing could be useful.
0: Usually those employees have engineered that one thing. So that they've become indispensable.
1: Absolutely. And so, you know, yeah, that's right. They may have one big client where their friend works there, for example. And so if you fire the person, you fire the client. That's a very common occurrence, actually. So, um, you know, it's really up to... If if I don't want to deal with that person, I'll make the team deal with it. If the the team doesn't want to deal with the person, then everyone's in agreement; They need to go. In which case, okay, I may or may not have a fight with the person... I have been to court three or four times over um, letting people go. Usually my experience has been that courts wanted a 50-50 deal. So you offer low, they offer high, and it comes out somewhere in between. It's all a big waste of time and money,
0: well, but sometimes it's necessary to set an example. And, and it takes a long time. Well, how long does it take for something like that to wind its way through the court system? Well, um, let,
1: let's just go through the programs. So first of all, if somebody is not performing, I'll just talk to them myself, right? And then if they still don't perform, then we've got a three-month program. So you give them a warning, uh, sorry, counseling, then a warning, and then let them go. And then if they're particularly tenacious, then you're working on the team. That would take about six months. And then if you want to go to labor court, well, you would have fired them in one month so they're not around. But then the court case will come up. That might take three to six months to actually come up. And then the actual court case itself will take roughly about a year to 18 months. I did have one case, and I wrote about this in Terry's take, where a guy got drunk and punched out a cab driver. Anyway, he got thrown in jail. The police wouldn't let him go until he paid uh, some consolation fee to the taxi driver, otherwise he was going to court, which he did after about two weeks. The trouble is he had some particular keys for these server rooms for a bank that I was doing business with, and those had to be turned in every 24 hours. And the police were keeping the keys as evidence. Oh my. <laughs> so of course I fired ass, and then he took me to court, okay, fine. Uh, everything was going sort of okay, and then he came up with this really great strategy. I mean, he was a really smart guy. He started claiming that he wasn't actually a freelance uh, employee, he was actually a real employee, even though he'd used the company name and sent me invoices and everything else. And this is this grey line between outsourced and in-sourced people, right? Right. Anyway, so I looked like I was going to lose this court case. So uh, actually, I, I challenged the uh, judge, actually. Uh, I, uh, in retrospect, I'd never do it. Now, but <laughs> anyway, I asked two things. One, I said, um, can I blog about this? And he went white. And then secondly, um, uh, you know, I just made it really clear at the end I was super unhappy because... You know, this wasn't about whether he was an employee. It was about whether he punched out a cab driver and wound up in jail, for God's sake. The uh, the judge told me that, oh, well, if uh, if it doesn't get resolved here, it has to go to high court. And I sensed my opportunity. And so I asked him, oh, if it goes to the high court, how long will the case take? And he said, at least five years, if you guys don't agree. And I, th- and I said to him, I'll take the high court. <laughs> so... Anyway, so the other side, they realized,
0: okay, let's just settle. So so we did. We settled. Well, I think a lot of the Japanese legal system is designed to make it more painful for everyone to pursue cases absolutely. than to settle. That's absolutely what it's all about. It's a great system, actually, if you
1: think about it. There are lots of gray. You never know where you stand. The guys behind the bench have all the power. Absolutely. 100%. And, you know, nobody can ever
0: second-guess them. It's really actually, a great but system. But in this case... How on earth is there any doubt whether he's an employee or not? There's employment contracts versus remember monthly was, invoices? Remember I was saying there are four layers of law. Right. So first of all, you have the
1: Constitution, which guarantees the right to work. So you can't write a contract that stops a person from taking another job. Uh, the second uh, level is the labor law itself, uh, which defines how much time off people get and what categories there are and how to treat women and pregnant ladies and that kind of thing not employing kids whatever the third level is group bargaining Uh, it's law that every company with more than 10 employees has to have a uh, group negotiated contract uh, which is displayed publicly most companies never do this but it's supposed to be done okay and so it's kind of like a pseudo union type arrangement so i often tell companies that are just getting started get that contract with your first employee because then you only have to negotiate with one person. Mm. So most companies don't even know about it. Well, that's illegal. And uh, that goes into the uh, minute of the labor law and then all the extra benefits that the company offers. And then under that, number four, is the employment contract, the weakest contract of all. The only thing that an employment contract is good for is to set a kind of like a standard of expected behaviour, and actually, I mean, ninety-nine percent of law-abiding Japanese follow that labour contract to the letter. Right, right. right. But one percent don't, because they know that that contract doesn't have any power. So anyway, so you've got these four levels, and of course, Western uh, Westerners or you know foreigners in general think, oh, employment contract, I got everything you know tidied up and so on. That's the weakest document you can possibly have,
0: right? Because there's so much law, both actual case law and court decisions, that supersede whatever is in that, that whatever might be in that. Contract. Well, well, there's the Constitution. Every
1: labor contract tries to put in a non compete, right, of some kind, right? Those aren't enforceable,
0: but not, but that's the point, right? So, so in this case, was he claiming that he was an employee despite the fact he didn't have a contract?
1: Correct. Okay. Actually, he had a contract, but he had a freelancer contract, yeah, a subcontractor
0: contract. Okay. I guess as a, a foreigner trying to navigate this, this vague and grayscale minefield, is it best just to document everything? To Well,
1: um, actually, um, Japan has this interesting uh, subculture of uh, advisors. Uh, For HR, they're um, called uh, Sharoshi, and uh, basically you can hire one of these guys for 10,000 yen an hour. So what you can do is you can say, look, this is the way I want to make my contract. You tell me what I can't do and how I should fix it. What I do is I use boilerplates from the States. Uh, Then I write down what I want out of that, and then I send it to a Japanese law firm, and I say, okay, tell me which parts can't be done in Japan and how I should do it. And then they fix it.
0: Yeah yeah legal advice in japan is is relatively inexpensive compared to what you pay in the states.
1: yeah the problem is that uh, legal advice in Japan doesn't give you advice they they do the opposite. they tell you what you can and can't do based on your questions yes. so if you don't know the right <laughs> questions to ask, actually you won't get legal advice
0: Yes they, they will tell you if you're, if, if you're in compliance they won't necessarily tell you how you know your best strategy for operating within the legal framework. Exactly. So, you
1: know, I would say that the the harshest legal environment in the world would have to be the U.S. And so, therefore, if I take a U.S. document and show it to a Japanese, I've already started from a pretty, you know, black and white uh, firm foundations base, right? And then, you know, they just need to tackle the bits that um, go against the Japanese constitution or the label or whatever it happens to be.
0: Getting back to, to startups and the government talks a lot about supporting startups and making changes. Or what are the most important structural improvements we've seen over the last thirty years? Well, uh, deregulation of the internet and telecoms. There is one more.
1: Before nineteen ninety, I think April, you couldn't hire a foreigner unless you were making fifty million yen of revenue for every foreigner you wanted to hire. And then after 1990, suddenly you could hire as many foreigners as you want. You know, a lot of people don't realize that Japan actually has an extremely open border for skilled foreigners. Anyone can come. You know, this is irregardless of all this new stuff that they're going on about. As an employer here in Japan, if I want somebody from Bangladesh, India, or Vietnam, as long as he went to, or she went to a decent university, I can hire them. It might take me a year, but I can get them. I didn't have to go through all the hoops that, uh, you know, an employer would have to do in the U.S. Wouldn't it be weird if startups came to Japan because it was easier to get uh,
0: developing country engineers into Japan than it would be to get them into their own country? Well, in fact, just um, a couple weeks ago, uh, Sandeep Kasi was on the show, and he mentioned the reason that his startup is headquartered in Tokyo rather than San Francisco was some of his co-founders had, couldn't get visas. Yeah, there you go, see? So it might be something we'll
1: see more of. If there is an increase in venture uh, business in Japan, I think it will be despite the system. And so you're asking me about structural changes yeah. and whether that will make a big difference. I'm saying, well, maybe it's nothing to do with what the government does directly. But this indirect thing about uh, allowing poorest borders and, and allowing people to stay here as long as they can earn enough money, well, that's a good thing. And certainly Japan needs it. And whether or not the target market is in Japan or whether it's the rest of Asia and it's just like Japan's, you know, a big US aircraft carrier, who cares? You know, they're still consuming in Japan and
0: they're still contributing to the tax base here. Yeah. It is something a lot of people are surprised at because Japan does have a very low immigrant population. It does. But for high-skilled labor, it's very easy to come and work in Japan. It is. But the
1: thing is that, of course, there's this natural reticence by Japanese companies to hire uh, foreigners, right? Unless they speak fluent Japanese. The, the hurdle isn't immigration. The hurdle is trying to get a job. <laughs> but if you've got a situation where you've got a foreign entrepreneur who's hiring in people to service some outside market, then, then you're in business.
0: Well, and as of, I believe it was two years ago, they, they created this kind of entrepreneurial visa where you can sponsor yourself for, I believe it's six months before incorporation.
1: Yeah, right. Well, you know, that's really just a nuance, to be honest, because the business manager visa was really the breakthrough. And a business manager visa, you can get three years on that and you don't actually have to put any money in or hire any people. You have to show that you're going to do it, but you don't actually have to have crossed the line yet. So that means that you can get the visa first, then cross the line. Or spend three years getting across the line. It's a lot, that's a long time to do business development. It's, it's a long time to do business <laughs> development. It's a great back door, And there's no reason for people not to be able to scrape together at least $50,000 to get in here.
0: Before we wrap up, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. Sure. And that's if I gave you a magic wand and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, the education system, the way people think about risk... Uh, the language ability, anything at all to make it better for startups in Japan, what would you change?
1: That's a really good question. Uh, if you want to change the way people think, uh, the easiest but certainly long-term view is to change the education system. How would you change it? Well, you've got to be careful what you wish for. <laughs> So uh, if you wish for too much westernization, you'll wind up with a westernized country which may start packing guns and everything else, right? Certainly, I would uh, recognize the individual more. I would value individual contributions more. Uh, The Japanese have this kind of weird personality flip when they go to university. Before they go to university, they're in a socialist society. All my kids went to Japanese schools at some point or other. Whenever they had a sports day, they were never winners. There were only fighting spirit awards, which everyone got. And the kids that can't keep up with the class still graduate at the end of the year. How is that possible? Right? Because they look after each other. As soon as they go out of um, university into uh, corporate life, the this, this social value is there, but suddenly they're confronted with this beast called capitalism, where they have to make
0: money and they have to get results. That's really interesting, because I think that the Japanese large corporations 30 years ago were just as socialist as the, oh, maybe we have to go back 40 years ago, were just as socialist as the education system, right. where it was promotion was seniority-based, and you had a job for life, and it was just everyone working with a team and supporting each other. Now, corporate Japan is, is no longer like that. Well, corporate Japan also only employs about 15% of the
1: workforce. So for the other 85%, which is probably more relevant to us as small entrepreneurs, they are confronted with this capitalist beast, and it's a huge shock for them. And so for some people, they go into protective mode. Other people try to grow with it. Other people become kind of like mentally disturbed. There are all these pressures that are coming out of this uh, sudden change of attitude and,
0: and losing the protective cover. Well, that whole subculture of otaku is people who have just couldn't adapt to that change and exactly. decided to check out of life. That's right.
1: That's right. If Japan wants to survive as a global entity, to forget about all the harmony within Japan, individualism has to be recognized. You have to stop the situation where intelligent Japanese leave the country and go to America or somewhere else to fulfill their potential. That's ridiculous. Why why is the country giving up its best and brightest?
0: Have you, have you seen any motions in that direction in Japanese education? It's pretty disappointing. Is it? Okay. Well listen, Terry. I have no idea how I'm going to edit this down to like a reasonable length. (laughs) Make it two. (laughs) But thanks so much for sitting down with me. Okay. Thank you. And we're back. Terry's advice on recruiting, hiring, and when you have to, firing Japanese employees is great. And the importance of peer pressure and peer support can't really be overstated. You know... I can't think of any foreigner in Japan who has been through more startup boom and bust cycles with his own money than Terry has. And there's not much more I have to add to the advice he gave on hiring and firing. Terry's point about the closed nature of Japanese data and their unwillingness to support APIs is an interesting one. On one hand, I think there's a bit of a generational shift in the attitudes towards open data and APIs, with newer, younger companies being far more supportive of the concept. Even in America, however, APIs are profoundly political and strategic things. Facebook and LinkedIn, for example, have opened up their APIs to draw in users from other platforms and then closed them off once the users migrated. In fact, both Facebook and LinkedIn have gone so far as to sue other startups for using their so-called open and published APIs for a business case that they disapproved of. Open data and open APIs are both wonderful things, but in today's world, all private APIs should be viewed with suspicion. If you've got a story about APIs or hiring staff in Japan, Terry and I would love to hear from you. So come by Japan slash show 110 and tell us about it. When you get to the site, you'll see all the links and notes that Terry and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to disrupting Japan.